of the age I wondered amongst themselves what I would do next after all that I'd found in my travels around the world was there anything left gentlemen I said I've studied the maps and if what I am thinking is right there's another new world at the top of the world for whoever can break through the ice I looked around the room That way I once had And I saw that they wanted belief So I said I like God Of my guts and my God Then I paused And the Annabelle Lee Oh the Annabelle Lee I saw their eyes shine The most beautiful ship in the sea My Nina, my Pinta My Santa Maria My beautiful Annabelle Lee That spring I set sail The crowd way from shore On board the crew with their hands But I never had family Just the Annabelle Lee So I'd never had cause to look back I just set the course north And I studied the charts And towards dark I drifted towards sleep And I dreamed of the fire Deep harbor I'd find Past the ice for my inability After that it got colder And the world got quiet It was never quite day or quite night And the sea turned the color of sky Turned the color of sea Turned the color of ice Till at last all around us Was fastness, one vast glassy desert Of arsenic white And the waves that once lifted us Sifted instead into drifts Against Annabelle's sides And the crew gathered closer At first for the comfort But each morning would bring a new set Of tracks in the snow Leading over the edge of the world Till I was the only one left And after that it gets cloudy But it feels like I lay there for days Maybe for months But Annabelle held me The two of us happy Just to think back on all we had done
rediscover She gave up her body to me And as I chopped up her mainsail for timber I told her of all that we still had to see And as the frost turned to moorings to nine tail And the wind lashed her sides in the cold I burned her to keep me alive every night In the loving embrace of her hold And I won't call it rescue What brought me back here to the old world To drink and decline And pretend that the search for another new world Was well worth the burning of mine But sometimes at night Dreams comes the singing of some unknown tropical bird And I smile in my sleep Thinking Annabelle Lee has finally made it to another new world Yes, sometimes at night In my dreams comes the singing of some unknown tropical bird And I smile in my sleep Thinking Annabelle Lee Finally made it to another new You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Mark Siegel. Mark is the publisher of First Second, uh, but more importantly for our purposes today, his uh, latest work is Sailor Twain, which he's been working on for many years um, while publishing other people's books. Um, which, the book just came out. Is it out now? 
Is it it's out? October 2nd. October? Oh, okay. So by the time this is up, it will be out in bookstores and comic stores. Um, so, well, congratulations on, on the completion. Um, Thank you, Robin. I'm sure while publishing uh, at the same time, it's taken quite some time to put it together, I'm presuming. It has. It's been about nine years in the works. And uh, it, it might have been less time if I was working just on that, but I wasn't. Now, your previous um, work, you'd, you'd done kids' books, correct? Yep. It's all been children's books up until this point. It's my first adult project. Um, what was the, the choice with kind of going in, in this particular direction, kind of shifting for yourself? Um, I think, well, sometimes, you know, some projects are the kinds that land in your lap in a way, or, you know, if you um, you just happen upon them or a collaboration opens up and you get a chance to, you know, like for me, I got my first break in publishing with uh, a collaboration on a picture book, which I did in a kind of comics format. Um, and then I had other other projects and I was, some of them were picture books, some of them were more in, in comics medium, but still within children's publishing. And then I had, you know, a need to do this project and this was, it was just one of those projects that I was going to do no matter what, whether I got a contract for it or not. And and fortunately I did and um but it was it was just one of those that was born of need. And and so it happened to be adult and I you know, that's that's how it needed to be. Now so you started working on this before you started for second. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I recently found the the first doodles, the first time you see you know, so there's a story of a captain and a mermaid and a steamboat in 1887, New York. Um, and I found recently a journal with the, from 2003, the first drawings of, of a, a conversation between this captain and, and the mermaid. So yeah, it's been long in coming. And it's needed it. It's needed, it's needed a slow cook, you know, to, to, to layer in a certain way and to develop, um, it was a number of things. I mean, part of it was was just plain historical research to get to get a real to immerse myself in New York, eighteen eighty seven, in the Gilded Age, mm -hmm. um, and and all all that went with that. And but part of it was also really growing those characters organically, getting to a point where I really knew them and they had voices of their own, and uh, and they escaped me. What um, you're not originally from New York, so I, I feel like, um, or I'm presuming you're not originally from New York. No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> no, I grew up. In, I grew up in France, actually. <laughs> um, I was born in the U.S. I was born in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and then, I, but I left when I was about three months old. Uh, my mom's French. My dad's American, and uh, so I grew up in France. I grew up with the French tradition of comics, you know, and the and the place that comics have in. In Western Europe, um, and then I came to the States for college and stayed. So I've been, you know, I, I've kind of, I've, I've been renaturalized to to North America, but I'm kind of straddling these two different cultures. I always have, like, in over there I was the American, and over here I, I was the Frenchie. But <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and and that plays into Sailor Twain because the two main characters are. The captain Twain and and Lafayette, who's the owner of the steamboat, who's a, who's a Frenchman, mm 
mm-hmm. and um, and the two of them they're they're drawn differently first of all Twain is drawn in kind of in in it's very um, rough or, yeah he's well kind of iconic you know he's he's more you could say more cartoony uh, and and also black and white he's much more kind of black and white like his moral world his world view yeah um, and whereas Lafayette is all shades of gray and he's drawn in a different kind of expressionism it's not really realistic but it's it's a different kind of expressionism so I was playing with that I was playing with those two those two sides those two genetics in a sense you know and kind of letting them run free do you find yourself different parts of yourself in the two characters I do I mean it started out as really at first these were really voices inside of me you know and then as the characters grew and grew and layered and I got to know them they started having really their own voices and and so in that sense you know then it, then it it's like when you get to that point in a project where you start listening more than kind of devising one of the reasons I was asking about you know not being from New York is um it seems like you almost have like a mythical appeal for this kind of classical idea of New York and New England or not necessarily New England, but like upper state New York. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, there, yeah, I mean, I definitely did fall in love with the Hudson river. I, 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 um, so I've been here about 10, 11 years in New York and I, I commute, I, I take the train from a river town up the river down to, to Manhattan every day so I, you know I, as I was working on the project and a lot of the early thumbnails and some of the pencils even I was doing on the train rides in um, and I got to gaze at the Hudson I got to know it I got to kind of dream at it and then I went exploring the Hudson I discovered you know parts of the Hudson that are much further north than where I live I got to to get a visceral feel for it and also visit a lot of the historical societies in the river towns like Rhinebeck and Poughkeepsie and Terrytown and Dobbs Ferry and these places, Sleepy Hollow, um, places that have legends, places that have a, a folklore and a, a history and uh, and also the New York Public Library and the New York Historical Society where I got to be on first name basis with some <laughs> of people, um, which was great. I mean, that was a magical part of this project was kind of being driven into exploring both you know 1887 itself as a as a time period and a a fascinating moment in history and and also getting to know the Hudson Valley which is a a really I find a very romantic place a very mysterious place you know and it, it lends itself to myth and I guess Washington Irving was probably the the, the great uh, Hudson myth maker with Rip Van Winkle and Sleepy Hollow and those those stories so following in his footsteps hopefully kind of there's a, a, a narrative tradition yes there is there is and there and there's more recent ones as well I mean there's an, uh, the novelist Pete Hamill did a great story called Forever a novel called Forever that takes place in Manhattan through all the ages of of uh, New York's history um, so I got to know these things and then you know what was funny was Sailor Twain I got to put 
this thing online, you know, and, and do an experiment at, with it as a webcomic before putting it out as a book. And, uh, and that drew in, you know, there were different, it was almost like different constituencies of readers. There were some people were like Jane Austen readers. Some people were uh, the history buffs. Some people were the New York history buffs. Uh, and then some people were just kind of drawn to the supernatural romance, I guess, of a captain and a mermaid. But the people, it, what was interesting was connecting, plugging into the, the Hudson Valley. There's a whole richness of things. There was a professor up in uh, Vassar, which is a great college up in Poughkeepsie, mm -hmm. um, who was sending me poetry of the 19th century about the Hudson River. Oh, wow. You know, which is great, and that would feed into the blog. And it actually, I mean, it, it inspired a couple moments even later on in the story. Um, so it was like this rich dialogue developed from because of doing the webcomic. And so people, you know, I, I suddenly found myself connecting up with the life of the Hudson Valley. There's like a winery. There's an award-winning wine that comes out of uh, Millbrook up near Poughkeepsie. And uh, and they put out two Sailor Twain wines, <laughs> you know. And we, we have like um, this. The folk singer Pete Seeger has this amazing ship, the Sloop Clearwater, which has become an emblem of the river, and mm. uh, and it's a, has a whole environmental mission to clean up the river from the pollution of uh, several big corporations. And uh, and and I found out last summer that that the crew was reading Sailor Twain, and they they basically said would you like to have our boat <laughs> so we did this sailor twain sunset sail um on the river it was a, a pretty unforgettable evening but i think I, but, i've seen photos of it um, yeah yeah it was it was incredible it was a really and we're doing another one actually around book launch but on october 5th but but that was the kind of stuff that was just an example one more example of just magic things happening because of this this love affair with the Hudson and, and suddenly strange unexpected connections happening through this project so that, that's been a kind of magical side effect mm -hmm. it sounds um, I, I like this idea of this kind of like greater community engagement mm. like really like connecting with folks and seeing um, what else is out there yeah I think I think the webcomic thing is because of the interactive nature of the web and because I think it depends a little bit on the the kind of dialogue that builds between a creator and 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 reader but it but it can be I think a webcomic can be exactly what you just said which is like a, a a community building experiment and some of them when they take off they really do have that that feature and this was like you know starting I this wasn't um there was no guarantee when I started out the webcomic I thought like I'm going to give this three months and it may to fall totally flat on its face and I'll just quit <laughs> uh, and just go back to, to working in a solitary style which is you know typically how books are made you know usually it's like an author in his or her cave toiling away you know in solitude and then eventually kind of throwing the the fruit of all that over the wall, you know, and waiting for for reviews and you know feedback. Whereas, like putting it out, trying this every Monday, Wednesday, Friday for two years, um, was like uh, 
it was a revelation. It was a, full of surprises, full of full of magic also. Il pleut, c'est pas ma faute à moi. Les carreaux de l'usine sont toujours mal lavés. Il pleut, les carreaux de l'usine, il y en a beaucoup de cassés. Les filles qui vont danser ne me regardent pas. Car elles s'en vont danser avec tout cela Qui savent leur payer pour pouvoir s'amuser Des fleurs de papier ou de l'eau parfumée Les filles qui vont danser ne me regardent pas Car elles s'en vont danser avec tout cela Il pleut, c'est pas ma faute à moi Les carreaux de l'usine sont toujours mal lavés. Les corridors crasseux sont les seuls que je vois. Les escaliers qui montent, ils sont toujours pour moi. Mais quand je suis seul sous les toits, avec le soleil, avec les nuages, j'entends la rue pleurer. Je vois les cheminées. De la ville fumée doucement dans mon ciel à moi, la lune danse pour moi le soir. Elle danse, danse, elle danse, danse, et son haleine immense à me caresse. Le ciel est pour moi, je m'y plonge le soir. Et j'y prolonge ma peine. Il pleut. Et c'est ma faute à moi. Les carreaux de l'usine sont toujours mal lavés. Il pleut. Les carreaux de l'usine. Moi. With that, one of the things that you've done, which I'm really curious about, um, if you can fill me in more, is the fact that you did a Kickstarter um, to take yeah. on that aspect. And for myself and a lot of other people, we're kind of like, well, like, what does this mean for book industry when we see a publisher <laughs> who has a book coming out and is also doing Kickstarter work in the promotion? And I, and I, like, I'm really curious because I think this is it's a it's a bit of a big issue. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I was basically once I got going with the web comic and I realized, you know, for, at first I I was waiting to see like if anybody would go in for a slow building story basically you know that was like gonna take its time winding in you know kind of 19th century style kind of a dense plot that would just um you know because because like the some of the most popular web comics are like xkcd and i mean kate beaton i love is one of my all-time favorites mm -hmm. um and but those are gag strips you know they're basically they're they're you can see how easily 
forwardable they are and how they can get contagious when there's a really hilarious one. Uh, but with a long form story, it's a bit of a different project. Once I got going with the web comic, then I, I basically thought, okay, this is an experiment. I'm going to just have to try as many things as possible with this, you know, what, you know, in the time that I have, that is. And I had already had some advance. I was about 50 pages ahead, you know, in terms of finished pages, but I had worked out my whole story for the most part. Um, so, so things like the Kickstarter, there were many of them, you know, many little experiments um, were just ways of testing things out to just see like, okay, what happens if, and with the Kickstarter, it was specifically, it, it wasn't like some of the Kickstarters that are, you know, way more successful than that when they worked, which was great. But when you see people like um, GGDG, who has the cucumber quests, you know, and which I love actually, I think that's a really wonderful, wonderful comic. And she was like setting out to get, I don't know, like 8,000 bucks or something. And she ends up with 65,000 and, but she's self-publishing. Yeah. Or like Jake Parker raising $80,000 for his, his anthology. You know, these are, this was not at all in on that scale. Um, and I, but it's still putting out a request for 7,000, which like for a lot of folks, that's a lot of, a lot of money to, yeah. to be able to just print the book. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's more than they need to print it, but then they're going to get a taste of what it's like to to try and publicize and marketing and all this stuff. But yeah, but yeah, no, I mean, from my, from my vantage point, you know, the experiment was, and, and I, I do have, you know, I, I have to admit that I've been, part of me has been like game to jump into any experiment with this project and partly I would do things that I wouldn't necessarily ask of my authors, you know, because I wouldn't necessarily put them through that until I, I had checked it out in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and we, so now we're doing quite a lot more of the webcomic stuff. We're supporting a number of webcomic uh, serials uh, and learn, and, and some of it is we've harvested some, some good experience, you know, the thing with Kickstarter that I learned and, and just to be clear, I wasn't, um, self-publishing like some of these other ones I mentioned I was really just specifically looking to fund the to basically drive some traffic to the webcomic and just support that part of it it's so kind of like beta testing yeah exactly exactly you know so I didn't I wasn't going for like a whole shebang you know replacing the publisher or anything like that which i don't i don't think i don't think it's the same game anyway you know i think um as people will learn you know when they when they do their projects and you know self-publishing is is glorious on one hand but it also has a whole bunch of headache and heartache attached to that as well in a different kind than you get from from dealing with uh, the publishing world well, I think there's something I'm really curious about here because we, there's kind of there's there, there's a couple different things sticking out to me. Mm -hmm. um, like the fir first is like I don't know if we can't can answer this yet is how would having um, an aggressive campaign and I by aggressive I don't mean like I mean like money going into it um, how yeah. that's gonna affect going from a web comic with like a solid build up audience to the print. Um, yeah the way it did and I think the other is um, that's right that's kind right. of 
looking at how funding sources work as far as like what role does this play in kind of doing this web-only stuff if we can get the resources to support this financially putting this out um, versus the need for the print edition. So yeah, that's... yeah, that's right. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that the, um, there's a question about that as well, just even about plain web comics and about giving away content for free, uh, which makes a lot of publishers nervous. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I and that was also partly why, you know, part of my freedom of movement here was that I was basically doing all this on my own dime. So it wasn't it wasn't uh, paid for by Macmillan that part of it, you know. But but I have to also say I had an advance, you know, once I once we agreed that it was it was going to happen through through Macmillan through first second that okay so I got an advance and then I was basically living on both sides of that table a bit but um which is always a bit weird but you know so so the experiment itself i was basically paying for uh, on my own so i could try all kinds of things and i figured you know there was a chance that i was going to fall flat on my face or it would just disappear without any notice um but i i think also the difference you know between just kind of um an infatuation with with uh new fads and new media and new platforms was mitigated by the fact that I really I really did have a story to tell so it was kind of like secondary to that you know I would kind of switch and put on my put on a different hat which was kind of like the department of experiments <laughs> you know new ways of marketing projects and things and 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 it did you know it did uh, give us some useful experience some of which played into first second and into some of the other projects that we put online like Zara's Paradise the Iranian project mm -hmm. um, and that that was also originally webcomic in Iran wasn't it yeah we well no 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 that one oh. we we generated that I mean we oh, okay. you know we 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 uh, had an original contract and uh, and at first the authors weren't they didn't really see why I was talking to them about the web you know and then but then they got they got into it and then they realized that you know by putting it online we could serialize it in Farsi and in Arabic and then that experiment totally proved itself uh, because before chapter three was even up we had sold I think a dozen languages and, and and they wanted to join the serial so we were serializing in 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 French as well, in Dutch, in Korean, in Hebrew, in German, in Italian, Spanish, and so on and so on. You know, so that was a really pretty remarkable kind of history-making moment, you know, where, where that model was vindicated for, for that particular project. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean you can just reproduce that model. Same with Sailor Twain. You know, Sailor Twain was a very unique confluence of things, and it was like... I think if we were to try to make that into a formula for doing webcomic projects... It, it would lose the specialness. Yeah, it would, you know. Like, there were things that were really not calculated that happened. Like, the whole thing with the cameos is that, you know, there's... If you look through the book, you'll see, you know, the many faces and and people on board the ship, this, this steamboat. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those people, many of them, many of those faces were readers... Because one time I was working on a crowd scene and I just said to, to the readers that day, I said, you know, hey, if you'd like to send me your photo and I'll put a cameo of you, you know, in, in 
Victorian dress, you know, on board. And it was a flood of pictures that came in. And I'm still getting some, actually. <laughs> the book's done! Every so often, I still get a photo saying, hey, could I have a cameo? And I'm like, you know, the book is, is in stores, practically. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was an example of something. It was really not calculated. And then it, then it ended up being a thing, you know, and it was kind of a magic thing. And I think if that was, if that was premeditated, it would have a different, uh, I think, a, a different aura about it. There, there was something I was just thinking about, um, where it kind of like it need to you need to take chances right now in publishing. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of publishers are nervous about that. Yeah. And I remember, because um, I deal with a lot of different level publishers doing the show, and I remember I needed images for one book, and so I asked that publisher, "Oh, hey, can you send me a PDF of that?" Because I'm used to, like I can yeah. contact other publishers. Yeah, here's a PDF, no problem. And they, no, we don't do PDFs because they're a bigger publisher. And I realized that whole work was available online <laughs> already, like originally before <laughs> the book was published. And it was kind of like, didn't I was like, oh wait, I could just do just copy and paste for the actual, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. it's like that interesting. Like that work is there. It's like almost kind of like. Uh suspicious and yet so naive you know? yeah. <laughs> all right it's uh maybe a bit of a non sequitur but i mean it's it's uh it, it's definitely interesting just to see what's what's going on and what no but i think you make a good point about being about it's a time it's a time to experiment um and i think because of the economy globally the temptation is to to minimize risk mm -hmm. um you know, and and I'm pre I feel pretty fortunate because I think with Macmillan the, as an environment, you know, Macmillan is not uh, it's not a corporation. First of all, it's privately owned, so it's a you know, it's a family basically. It's and instead of a, a single kind of monolithic corporation, Board. it's much more like a federation of very independent-minded publishers. And, uh, and in general, I'd say the, the kind of support that I've had, and I've had now seven years of experience with Macmillan, is that they really, they really do actually work with the long view mm -hmm. and not the short-term profit. You know, a lot of publishing has now gone into this kind of Hollywood model, which is the, the, the opening weekend has to be a blockbuster yeah. <laughs> or else, you know, it's over and on to the next thing and, you know, cut our losses kind of thing. But it, but it, I must say, with Macmillan, there's definitely been uh, an investment in the long haul, and that applies to First Second. You know, First Second has really had a run at building something that that would never have happened if if we had had to to prove ourselves immediately in our first quarter. It's, I mean, it's interesting to say that because I mean, one thing before we started, we were talking about. Uh, amazing French cartoonists, but even in France, are having the same experience. In the in the comics, I was when I was reading uh, Goulet's extensive blogs. Um, mm. One thing he was talking about is like the experience in Angoulême, where uh, there's more focus on these celebrity comics, right, than, right, right, than necessarily right. like the, you know, uh, an auteur. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we saw that in America. We saw that in the picture book. You know, for a while there was like a glut of celebrity picture books. Yeah, and it's still—I mean, it's still 
they still keep coming, but I think it's less so. I think a lot of publishers woke up to the fact that 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 they were putting out uh, pretty bad books, mostly, you know, <laughs> and they were, you know, they would they would have a, a big kind of spike of sale, and then the thing would just disappear because it really had no merit. And then they'd be remaindering a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you know, there's there's less of a rush now to just because someone's famous to have them do a picture book now in your own book um we're talking about everyone else's book i'm talking about your own book yeah no thank <laughs> you i appreciate that uh it's so it's easy. easier championing other people actually i must say <laughs> um you i'm curious about uh the decision to do charcoal um yeah art. like it's well okay common. so so if i just turn my head back into the uh, <laughs> that into the project so so there's you know this this story as it evolves turned into kind of three interwoven love stories basically and there and we're in in the, the end of the 19th century and we're on the river and it's a summer where it pretty much never stops raining from the moment the captain meets this mermaid uh, and and the mood, I, I could feel the mood in my mind. And I did a couple rounds, actually, of uh, a whole number of pages. I, th I remember doing about 30 pages in um, ink. And I, I was, it was weird, because I was like, I could tell the joy had gone out of it. And, um, and it wasn't right, and the characters looked, everything looked too hard. Uh, and then I, I went doodling away with different things and when it was when I picked up a piece of charcoal that it was like suddenly and it was not even a finished drawing it was just like a little hint of a steamboat with the smoke coming out of the smokestacks but it was just just smudged to the point where you almost don't see it anymore and I went like ah that's it that's the mood you know it's like an it, it's something about the fog and the mist and the coal dust um, and the steam power and the industrial revolution and this kind of gothic gray New York yeah um, that I felt like the beauty of charcoal is that you could things could appear and disappear and you could hint at things and you didn't have to spell it all out you know just like the story the writing in the story follows a similar feeling hopefully um, so the charcoal was right and I could, you know, once I got that and then suddenly the characters visually started coming alive and I thought, okay, that's the medium, but then it has problems and, and there's good reasons why more people don't do comics <laughs> in charcoal. You know, first of all, it's incredibly messy and um, second of all, you have to work really big because, I mean, pretty big because you're, you know, it's hard to get fine detail. Mm-hmm. And the lettering I was doing with a greasy pencil, but it felt like it, it was still staying inside that uh, that kind of visual world. Um, so I got working that way, and so I did my pencils. I would do small thumbnails in in uh, and anywhere I could, like on the train rides into work, on you know every spare moment. And also my pencils were pretty small, where I would I would do a, a slightly more detailed study and I would I would put down any of the historical research like the fashion stuff or the architectural stuff or the um, 
steamboat mechanical stuff, you know. I would get that figured out in my drawings, in my pencils, and those I kept in a little journal, basically. So I did them at a size that I could do it anywhere, anytime I had a moment. Um, and then I would project that pencil in my studio over a large, a large piece of watercolor paper. Okay. And then I would basically work in the basic drawing and charcoal and then switch off the projector and then just go into the detail and and play but it, I mean it involved also masking off you know around the panels and masking the balloons with with artist tape and uh, so that I could keep it reasonably clean you know and then there was a the whole issue of scanning them which was like <laughs> I mean that was I mean once I figured out these there's a company that does these great plastic sleeves um, that I had so I they were scanned inside of sleeves so I wasn't like wrecking any scanners anymore. <laughs> I was wondering maybe to have to like photograph them yeah no I mean I, it could lead to all kinds of problems I mean that's yeah but I mean once it was figured out I had a pretty good system I felt like I had a pretty pretty simple method that I could you know I knew what I was doing so I would be early mornings basically but when I woke up I would go into the studio very early I'd get a couple hours in there and then go to work and then on my way into work you know if I didn't have to urgently like edit a, a manuscript or something then I I could uh, do a little more preparation for the next day's session and uh, and so I had to I ended up developing a kind of a a mindset of like of having many little lives rather than big marathon sessions in the studio it's uh, like compartmentalizing a little yeah everything. yeah yeah do you feel uh, when you were done? Did you kind of take some time off and just enjoy some mornings? No, no. Well, no. I mean, that really did become that. That routine became uh, a source of well-being. I'd say it became a source of balance. Uh, it's a weird thing. I mean, you know, yeah. If you, you know, if you're in your, if you're in your studio at five a.m., then then there's other things that have to go. You know, you're probably not going to have any kind of social life worth speaking of. Uh, but I didn't. I can't say that I missed that. Terribly, I feel like um, I was I was willing to pay that price because I felt like you know the other thing about building up a routine like that is that it um, you stay warm you know so so I basically you know before I was even done with Twain already some things were ebbing in that were taking its place and there's a few projects that are you know I, I basically keep that time sacred. <laughs> <laughs> Are you gonna the next project you work on? Are you gonna approach in kind of a similar method using the web again? Oh, I don't know about serializing. I mean, there's one, there's a couple of things that are um, possibly a picture book. There's a couple of long form stories. There's some, there's something cooking that I'm really interested in. That's gonna be, it, it's gonna take a little while, I think, to 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 really take form. That could lend itself to that, but I think it. You know, for myself, it was such a magical experience. I think it would be a mistake to try and repeat it because mm -hmm. it, it could only be an echo of that. I mean, I feel like there's a whole magic thing that happened with the readers of Sailor Twain. You know, they called themselves fellow Twainers, <laughs> and, and it was incredible numbers of people reading. But it was it was uh, maybe a hundred or so that were that were regular commenters, 
and uh, and some of them became friends, and it, it just and it really happened because it was like it was kind of right, and it was true, and it was sincere, and and these people, um, you know, we 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 just had delightful dialogues in and around, mostly around the story. You know, it was amazing to me how they really were sticking to it. You know, and every so often there'd be a tangent about something about sex or about mermaids or about something or other. <laughs> Um, you know, but, it, but, but mostly it was really, um, they were sticking to the mysteries of the story, you know, and yeah. that was, that was really exciting. People still get the hang ups on the, on the mermaid sex. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, that was clear, like, you know, it was going to be an adult project for sure. Uh, just, I knew it was going to be an adult project for the themes because, because it's, you know, partly partly it's a midlife crisis story in a way you know set in a in a kind of victorian setting but but it's also a, you know i hadn't planned to draw that many boobs <laughs> <laughs> and and there's just you know i it, i realized once i was into it it's like okay it's a mermaid it's it's um it's going to be there yeah um i remember reading somewhere that first second like uh specifically does not necessarily do sexual or violent books um no really you read that somewhere i thought i read that somewhere like as part of submissions like not excessive like there's a certain oh no i hope not okay (laughs) we better not have that anywhere (laughs) no no i mean for our children's books we definitely don't do yeah you know yeah no 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 but we have i mean gus if you know christoph blaine's gus that's Mm -hmm. definitely one of the raunchiest books we've put out (laughs) um no we have a few I mean, I guess Sailor Twain probably has to rank up there with like, with the uh, the adult content. But no, no. I mean, with with uh, first second, I think you know it needs to be it needs to be appropriate. And and we do you know we have run into issues where we learned the hard way that you know in America, um, in certain states in America, you know, we it's not okay. We can't have a kid peeing. <laughs> what? You know, in a in a children's story, uh, or else we're not going to get in any public funding for that, the libraries. You know, we ran into that with the Sardine in Outer Space books. You know, from Jean Sfar and and uh, Emmanuel Guibert. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's things like that, which is like the practicalities of the marketplace and all this stuff. But but uh, no, with our adult books, there's no limits. I mean, there's some stuff. There's some very raw stuff, very violent and and even disturbing stuff in um, like the books we did with Adam Rapp or with uh, Zara's Paradise. Yeah. That was really fantastic. I got to say, I really, really, really enjoyed Zara's Paradise. Yeah, I'm really proud of that one. I mean, I think that was, it's a special book. And I think the timeliness of it is, is just growing with every passing headline, you know. Is that kind of, that's one of those books where it was like kind of a benchmark for you? Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, because we have from from day one with for a second, there was always an intention to have this uh, one strand of the collection would be these books about world affairs and and about human race issues. You know, big uh, uh, trying to address. And we had Dio Gracias about the genocide in Rwanda. We had uh, the photographer about med- mm-hmm. doctors without borders in Afghanistan. Uh, and and Zara's parent. That's also. I mean, that was a remarkable book. And and then 
and there's been a few others as well, but I think Zara's Paradise is definitely one of the the gems in that particular line of the collection. Now, we were mentioning earlier, I guess it's been a it's been more than five years that you've been doing first, second, four, I guess about six years. Yeah, six or seven years. I mean, six years in stores, I think. Yeah. I think in 2006, we came out in stores. Has thing Have things shifted as far as, like, kind of where you've come from and where you're at? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the quick answer. But, yeah, no, no they have. Um, I think it's we're operating in a very different landscape than we were back then. Um, I feel like it's almost like some of the battles that were being fought for the last 20 years for on behalf of comics as a as a worthy medium um, have been won yeah you know and now it's just a matter of people getting caught up to that fact it's it is very different than the days when Art Spiegelman was out there you know shouting and ranting about you know comics are comics can have depth and comics can have meaning you know and it's kind of a given now for anybody who bothers to to find out for themselves so and i do a lot a lot of talking around the around the states you know where i talk about uh, i talk to to hundreds and hundreds of librarians and booksellers and educators and and i can see i can see the change that has happened just in five six years it's incredible you know, and there were like there's some obvious watershed moments you can point to. You can say, okay, American Born Chinese was definitely a, a watershed moment for a, a lot of people, um, but also a, a whole slew of books that really have reached out and made the case. You know, and now there's just such a there's such an incredible amount of really inspired talent. You know, working in in comics that uh, it's almost redundant to, to, to say it, you know? <laughs> it's definitely, it's it's a point in time, and I think uh, Chris Ware was saying this now, like there's more good cartoonists uh, now than any point in time. That's right. I totally agree. I mean, it's true. It's true. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing, you know, when you see the people, and I feel like I'm working with many of them, you know, some really extraordinary talents but then there's people you see like David Mazzucchelli and see yeah the people who've been around a long time who are really seasoned you know like Nick Bertozzi um, Dan Klaus I mean it's like it's, it's it's just incredible you know and then I see some people here like you know Vera Brosgall with Anya's Ghost was like that was her debut graphic novel yeah um, <laughs> and it's it's incredibly accomplished you know it's really there's just a skill and an assurance and a confidence, you know, and that's another thing I love is like, you know, we have some really kick-ass talent in, among women cartoonists, you know, when you look at like Sarah Varon and Vera Brosgall and Jen Wang and um, Faith Hicks is incredible. Is that something purposeful or is it just kind of how it's developed? Because I mean, really you do have substantive amount of uh, work coming out from women. Yeah, we do. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't think we would just, you know, I wouldn't just buy a project just because it was, you know, it, we, it, they're not held to a different standard, you know, but I, I feel like um, 
that is part of the moment we're in, I think, is, is uh, there is there has been a rebalancing of comics that has benefited, I think, men and women, and, and also men and women readers, you know, are getting a greater richness of content and material and, and um, voices because of the fact. But yeah, I mean, we, you know, I, it's great. We do have some, some incredibly talented women. Well, I mean, with, uh, we just started, we just signed up a project with Becky Cloonan also. I mean, there's, there's many, many of them that are really top-notch talents. One of the things that could be said from even a marketing standpoint is the fact that chances are women readers would kind of connect with books by other women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's almost yeah, like yeah. a yeah, no-brainer in that aspect. That, you know, I think also the manga explosion had a, a big shift for that. Like it just, you know, because with manga, it was like 60%, 70% female readers sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that definitely altered the balance. You know, and some of the manga influence has come into... I mean, it's interesting when you look at, uh, you know, you look at the the, the, the the influence of manga on people like... Well, like Becky Cloonan. And, like Becky Cloonan, like Brian Lee O'Malley, like Derek Kirk Kim, you know, it's like, it's part of the vernacular. It's kind of absorbed into their fabric, you know, and it's not like they're doing manga. Uh, they're definitely not. They're do, doing something that's feels, you know, native to North America, so to speak, but it's like the manga thing is, is, is part of it. And I think that's how it should be. It's like, you know, the best of everything happening around the world is now cross-pollinating with the best of everything else and it's a pretty remarkable time we're in that's for sure for comics those good things all over the globe mm. so you have something particular in mind for the music that's to go with the show yeah uh maybe a few oddball selections there's three songs that come to mind right away that were like they were recurrent themes from the readers of sailor twain and so they almost became part of the soundtrack of the webcomic. And actually, on at sailortwain.com, I think it's in the extras page or something. There, there's a whole list of playlists uh, that were gathered from readers, and there's some great stuff in there. A lot of them have links to the YouTube videos. But okay, so three of them: one by Amy Winehouse, one by Josh Ritter, and one by Jacques Brel, the French singer, the Belgian singer Jacques Brel. Uh, by Jacques Brel is a song called Il Pleut which means it 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 rains uh, which is if you get a chance to see him perform it on a YouTube video that's a great thing but but it's kind of a heartbreaking song about about despair basically <laughs> um, then uh, Amy Winehouse back in black uh, many readers made all kinds of different connections to that particular song with the kind of uh, the themes of obsession and addiction um, and there's a character who was a bit inspired by Julie, by Amy Winehouse before before she died. Um, and the other one is a Josh Ritter song called "Another New World." Okay. And it's on the album "So Runs the World Away." Another New World. Awesome. And it has lovely 19th century references running through it. And it's just, it's a, it's a great song. That became a kind of a theme song for Sailor Twain. So if you get to have those three on there, that would be great. That would be great. That would be perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Mark. 
Thank you, Robin. My pleasure. Just a reminder, folks, I've been talking to Mark Siegel. He is the uh, cartoonist behind Sailor Twain, as well um, the 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 dude behind uh, First Second Books. Um, <laughs> both very fine things to check out. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Robin. Il pleut, pas ma faute à moi. Les carreaux de l'usine sont toujours mal lavés. Il pleut, les carreaux de l'usine, y en a beaucoup de cassés. Les filles qui vont danser ne me regardent pas. Car elles s'en vont danser avec tout cela Qui savent leur payer pour pouvoir s'amuser Des fleurs de papier ou de l'eau parfumée Les filles qui vont danser ne me regardent pas Car elles s'en vont danser avec tout cela Il pleut, c'est pas ma faute à moi Les carreaux de l'usine sont toujours mal lavés Les corridors crasseux sont les seuls que je vois Les escaliers qui montent, ils sont toujours pour moi Mais quand je suis seul sous les toits Avec le soleil, avec les nuages J'entends la rue pleurer Je vois les cheminées de la ville fumer Doucement dans mon ciel à moi La lune danse pour moi le soir Elle danse, danse, elle danse, danse Et son haleine immense à l'eau me caresse Le ciel est pour moi, je m'y plonge le soir et j'y plonge ma peine. Il pleut et c'est ma faute à moi. Les carreaux de l'usine sont toujours mal lavés. Il pleut. Les carreaux de l'usine Moi J'irai les casser